Hi, everybody. My name's Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, I was waiting for other stuff. I, I didn't know it was going to happen so quick. At least I get you all before you go to sleep over the tryptophan. You know, I know the turkey's going to have you not. He was good, boy, I tell you. I think I wasn't awake for it. Uh, I want to thank you very much for having me here. It's, uh, it's really been a pleasure. This has been a great weekend so far. Uh, I certainly have had... Uh, a ball, and uh, you know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous just to stop throwing up and stop shaking. Uh, I was dying, of, I was dying of terminal alcoholism, and the idea that uh, uh, in May 25th, 1979, when I finally took my last drink, that someday, somewhere, I'd get on a plane and come to Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> you know, that just didn't occur to me. That wasn't a goal for my sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I got. Out, I went for a little walk today, though. Yeah, I went down the strip here. I got out of here. I'd been in the hotel the whole time, and this is like Minot, my, Lost Minot, or something. I mean, you got gambling and bowling alleys and off-track betting. This is a really fast strip right here. I don't know. It's a little secret. I know there's some of the the newer people going. Well, this is a deal here. I hang out, and then maybe one day I can get on a plane and go somewhere and talk. That's pretty cool. That's where staying sober for. It's just I want to let the newcomer know you're in Laneville here. You're in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is like the lamest thing any alcoholic could ever do, get sober. You know, I mean, all the cool people are out there getting drunk tonight, uh, finding a relationship to last for the evening. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can't be cool and be an Alcoholics Anonymous. Last time I looked in the big book, it never shows you how to be cool. So when you do this, Dale and I were flying in, you know, and we were going, we've had, we had the red eye and we were going, man, we got to get to bed, you know, and get to sleep. You know, if you, if you were still drinking, it would be, uh, I'd have been thrown out of every place on this trip before I got here, you know, and, and they'd have thrown me out of the Western wear at that store down there. I went down to that. I thought I'd buy a hat and some boots and stuff for tonight so you could relate to me, but uh, <laughs> they wouldn't rent me anything. <laughs> And then if you really you think you're really cool, I just want to show you what the, the kind of things. This is this is my big souvenir of Minot, so it's like the, the North Star Bowl of Minot. I'm going to take that back to L.A. just to show them that I was here. So. so newcomers, this is, you know, this is just not a cool thing to do. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do to is cool, but getting sober, see, getting sober is, a, is, is just, it makes you so square your hip again is what happens with that. And, and what I realized in my eighth year of sobriety was that there's no way not to work a program. If you're an alcoholic, it's called a double bind. God's got us in this double bind. See, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to work and I'm going to use a little profanity. I'm going to obey. I know, I hate to use that word in front of alcoholics, obey. But I'm going to obey the rules of sobriety and defy the rules of alcoholism or I'm going to obey the rules of alcohol and defy the rules of sobriety. What I'm not going to do is not not work a program. You know, Bill Wilson in the 12 and 12 says, defiance is the outstanding characteristic of many alcoholics. And I like that because he says many alcoholics. Because if he'd said defiance is the outstanding characteristic of all alcoholics, I would have defied him by not being defiant. <laughs> See, and I, I don't know how I got that. All I know is I, if we could all go back and look at our report cards of everybody in this room, I would bet they all said the same thing. Does not play well with others. <laughs> You know, we're a group full of people who walked in the kindergarten, grabbed the teacher by the neck and said, if you're real good, I'm going to let you stay. <laughs> Give me the cookies and all the blankets. I'm in charge. <laughs> See, I don't know why I've always been that way, but I know when he says defiance is my outstanding characteristic, he's talking to me. It, it, my whole life they said, Steve, do not go to the right and play in the poo-poo. Take a left turn and get the gold bars. Well, you can't tell me what to do. I can play in that poo-poo if I want to. 
Don't you try to run my life. <laughs> my father was in the service. Uh, he was stationed in Alaska. They told me that anything wet stuck on metal in cold weather. It was 20 below zero. I put my tongue on the monkey bars. I come from an alcoholic family. They could have been lying to me, you know? I don't know. I have to test that stuff out. Might have been able to get loaded from licking the monkey bars or something. So see, it's this double bind. I'm going to do one or the other. And I thought about that. Uh, I have this friend who always says he wants to see the newcomer's literature because he knows that you've got it. You know, it's and I say, well, what kind of program was I working? What is that other program I'm going to have to work if I don't work the program of recovery? And I don't know what your 12 steps that you worked when you were drinking went, what, what were like, but these are the ones I worked. My 12-step program went something like this. One, I declared I was in complete control of my drinking and my life was fine and dandy. Thank you very much. <laughs> Two, I always knew there was no power greater than myself, but all of you needed to be restored to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of alcohol because it was the only thing that understood me. Four, made a paranoid and immoral inventory of anybody but me. Five, admit nothing to nobody ever. Six, became entirely willing to have God punish you for all your defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to go bug somebody else. Eight, made a list of all persons who had harmed me and became willing to take revenge upon them all. Nine, took direct revenge whenever possible, especially when to do so would injure them and others. Ten, continued to take your inventory, and when you were wrong, promptly told you so. Eleven, sought through alcohol and medication to improve my unconscious contact with myself, praying only for what I wanted, when I wanted it, and the power to get it. And twelve, having achieved spiritual death as a result of these steps, I tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and take just as many of them with me as I could. <laughs> There's only one tradition, do whatever you got to do to get through the night. Two 12-step programs side by side, and what I've realized, I, the alcoholic, will work one, or I will work the other, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the defiant alcoholic, the rebel, the rebel with no cause. The idea that I'm absolutely going to have to serve somebody comes as a hard lesson. All I can tell you, the service I've had to do in, in the cause of sobriety and staying sober, uh, that life, the pain has been much less, and that has been a categorical. If I choose one or the other, I will choose to obey the rules of sobriety. And that means it's not very hard. Get a sponsor, uh, read the big book, try to help somebody else. Pretty simple, uh, pretty simple rules, stuff we probably all learned in kindergarten. You know, uh, I love us in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have these, this referral to these people we call normies that don't have a program. <laughs> you know, it's like, I almost had to die. I threw up half of my stomach. Then I was willing to accept the idea of God. You know, there are people out there, they said, there's a God. Say, that's a good deal. I'll take it. <laughs> they didn't have to come to A&A and almost die. But see, I've always, I've always had this bad attitude. I still have this bad attitude sometimes. See, God has never given me justice. God has only given me mercy. But I always want to get in the justice business. I don't know about you, but I'm always trying to edge into that justice business. It's like when they have 13 items in the 10-item line. You know, these little blue-haired old ladies that don't think they have to obey the rules anymore because they're old. Being a spiritual guy that I am, trying only to be of help, I get behind him and go, can't count when you get old, huh? <laughs> so with my attitude, if uh, you had 13 items in the 10-item line, what I'd do is I'd shoot you, gut you like a deer, hang you over the cash register, 13 items in the 10-item line, then people wouldn't do that anymore. Right? Somebody cut you off on the freeway, 30 caliber machine guns right in the front of your car blow them off of the freeway, right? then they wouldn't do that anymore. And then the worst people in the whole world, people who are not handicapped, who park in handicapped parking, right? If I was God, and you'll be very glad I'm not. <laughs>
And you weren't handicapped, you parked in handicapped parking, I would paralyze you from the waist down and make you crawl through to get your groceries one time, then you wouldn't do that anymore, see? Newcomers, 14 and a half years, okay? <laughs> Takes a long time. <laughs> and I'm better. <laughs> See, so the fact of the matter is, I'm always judging you on where you are, and I'm always judging myself on where I'm trying to get. And so I want to make sure everybody in the world gets what they deserve but me. <laughs> and when I do that, God says, Steve, I've never made you pay the freight for what you've done. All I've done is given you mercy, and I've got some other people better handled, to, qualified to handle justice. All I want you to do is give away what I've given to you. And I don't know any better place than Alcoholics Anonymous to do that. I don't know any better place than Alcoholics Anonymous to continually give back what I've been given. And when I walked through the door of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had absolutely nothing you wanted. I was a terminal case of alcoholism. I was dying on my feet. I was 29 and I was finished. And I walked in that door, and I still remember the guy. His name was Tim. He was dressed in tennis clothes. He was, looked like he could play tennis. And, of course, I thought if you were an AA, all you could do was sit around and drink wine out of brown paper bags, sitting on mattresses. See, I'm an alcoholic, never been to a meeting, but I had an opinion on one. And, and Tim put his hand out and said, hey, I'm Tim. I'm an alcoholic. I'll respect that because I have a disease, the disease of alcoholism, a horrible, horrible disease. My grandmother and my grandfather had four daughters, a family of family. Killed my grandfather. Killed my mother, killed one of her sisters. Terrible, terrible disease. And what it does, and then it takes your life. And that's where I was. I was at the turning. It's the first step in getting myself for being. And for that, I, I'm always grateful. You know, I, sometimes I, I don't know, I, I, I keep playing with this, but you know, I have to say that a lot of times I don't go to meetings because I need a meeting. And, and I don't mean to say, sound arrogant about that, but some nights I know I could stay home and I could watch the tube, but I'm going to stay sober. But you see, in 1979, May 25th, somebody said, should I watch Kojak or should I go to a meeting? I'll go to a meeting. And somebody was there when Steve Bordner walked in. You know? And my job today is to make sure that somebody's in the room when the new person walks in. So maybe I don't need a meeting that night, but maybe the newcomer needs somebody that's been there. And then there are those days when I'm just the, the hurting alcoholic in the room, and I need, to be, I need to be there because my survival and my serenity depend. I want to clear up one thing, though. You know, I say I'm an alcoholic, and I just want to make sure you, you understand what I mean when I say I'm an alcoholic. When I say I'm an alcoholic, that means I've got a physical allergy to ethyl alcohol. It means I have this abnormal rea reaction to ethyl alcohol, which means when I drink it, I want more. Now, I realize saying that drinking alcohol and wanting more is abnormal is a confusing statement to make in a room full of alcoholics. Because it's like, why wouldn't you want more, Steve? That's what we do with alcohol. Is there more? Where can I get more? Is there more over there? Do I have to go across the border to get more? I need some more. But see, a normal drinker will have a drink, maybe two drinks, and say something very peculiar like, no, thank you, I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> to which you want to grab them by their non-alcoholic collar and shake them. I used to work in a restaurant. It'd be Friday. They'd come in and they'd go, oh, man, yeah, they really ate my lunch this week. I really didn't. Would you like a drink before dinner, sir? Oh, yeah, I, I, I tell you, it was really a tough week. I, want, I need a drink. I want a drink. I'm going to have a, a white wine spritzer <laughs> on the rocks. Lots of spritz, not too much wine. And you want to slap them because <laughs> having a hard a drink after a hard week is give me a double scotch, boy, and don't let my glass get empty. And then they leave some of it. Have you ever like, gone to the movies with like, non-alcoholic friends and you're a little late, you say, well, I've got a little wine here. Well, just to throw, you know, and it's only about that much in the glass. There's only that much. He said, well, just throw it down. They go, oh, I'd get sick. <laughs> <laughs> I drink that much wine, I'd get sick. 
<laughs> Why are you drinking this stuff? To have this abnormal reaction to ethyl alcohol, I never can get enough. It's called the phenomena of craving. And that's not a problem if I don't ever drink it. But my other problem is I have this mental obsession. See, I cannot live life on life's terms. You people grind me down. <laughs> you won't do it my way. You won't turn your will in your life over to my care. I mean, Russ really made me mad today. He said something I hate. I'm not the center of the universe. I hate that. I want to be. <laughs> I didn't come into A looking for God. I came in thinking I was God. And I'm disappointed on any given day I'm not. I want to run the universe. And I don't think you're an alcoholic if you don't want to run the universe. You know what I mean? I want to put that on the 20 questions. Would you like to be Pope of AA for the day? <laughs> no. Then you can drink. Everybody wants to run AA for a day just to get the riffraff out. Unfortunately, if I ran it, you might be the riffraff, and if you ran it, I might be the riffraff, so we don't let anybody run it. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to be the center of the universe. I thought I was the center of the universe, you know? And so I have this mental obsession. When you think you're the center of the universe, when you believe you're God or are acting like God and you're not, you've got to drink. It's just too much pressure. And so I didn't know. I have this mental obsession. No matter what, no matter what happened, little drink you cost me, my wife, my kids, my jobs, my self-respect, every good, loving, kind thing I have in my life. See, I do that because I have to do that, because I cannot not drink. Ease. I have a mind that forgets the sufferings of a day, a month, a minute ago. I have a disease that when my, my ex-wife told me, at that time was my wife, when she said, you're drinking too much, and if you don't stop, it's going to ruin our marriage. And it wasn't because I didn't love my wife. See, it wasn't that alcoholics don't love their children. I think alcoholics love their children as much as anybody else, but I got a disease and I could not not drink. I have a mental obsession that forgets. Uh, the best I've ever heard is, is alcoholism is like if, if we put a guy outside this door, he's like 250 pounds of muscle and a baseball bat. You walk out that door and he beats the heck out of you, right? Well, a normal person will go out that door one time, then they're going out the back door. And a mentally challenged person might go out the door once or twice, but then they're going to go out the back door. The alcoholic will go out that door day after day, week after week, month after month, and let that guy beat the heck out of him. Then the day he's not there, you sit down and wait for him. <laughs> a mental obsession. I have, they had a, a show on Oprah, and it was Drunk Drivers Who Still Drive. <laughs> I love that title, Drunk Drivers Who Still Drive. And this was around a Christmas show, and they had all these guys who had had their licenses suspended for years who were still driving and driving drunk. And she asked all of them a question, why do you do it? And none of them had the answer. And I said, you need an alcoholic on there to explain this. Because they could not not drink. They don't know why. I didn't know why. I didn't know I had a disease until I came in these rooms. I just was looking for some solution before I died. And I came in here and you people, you people gave me the solution and you gave me the 12 steps, which I, I don't know, if you're sitting in this room and, and you're, you're thirsty tonight, if you're sitting in this room thinking maybe one more drink might fix it, I can only tell you I don't have the obsession to drink today. I very rarely think of one. Every once in a while, you know, I'll see the Heineken bottle go by on a hot day, you know, and that little drop going down the green glass and, and my, head, my little addiction will start talking to me. Beer's not really alcohol. <laughs> Beer is health food. It's all organic. <laughs> it's got a lot of fiber in there. We could probably drink just a little beer. You know, you're German by heritage. You could drink some. That's what I loved in my walk today. There's a guy, there's this thing down here, Joe's Pizza. So it's got some sign on it like, best pizza in town. 
I want to know where his competition is. I'm in North Dakota, all right? This is Joe, like, Joe Lindgren. It's not like, you know, it's like best pizza in town. So anyway, my head, my head will start talking to me. He'll go, he'll go, let's have a beer. We've never had a St. Pauli's girl. We've never had a Long Island iced tea. We've never tasted any of this stuff. And after a while, I'll tell him, shut up, and I'll go to a meeting. And that happens to me maybe twice a year. But the people that I know that still have the taste in their mouth, I believe the people who haven't gone all through the steps. Because for me, the fellowship let me know that I was not a wingnut out there, that I was not some sort of mutated human, that I was just one of you. I was an alcoholic. I came in here and I heard you people drank the way I drank. And then what expelled the obsession to drink were the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit tonight. I'd just like to talk about my experience of, of what the 12 steps have done in my life. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a supernatural program. Here, one and one equals three. We do these dumb actions, you know? We do this dumb stuff our dumb sponsor suggests. Because you call up with your sponsor and she ain't treating you right, and he tells you to do something like reach page 92. And it works. I don't know, people call me up all the time. And I say, read page uh, 17. I don't even know what's on 17, all right? I just tell them to read it. About two days later, thanks, man, that really helped. Wow. So I go read 17 to see what's there. <laughs> If you're new, if you really want to see if your sponsor's awake, call them tonight and go, you know, and do your regular newcomer thing. Me, 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 my, 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 them, 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 You know, give them, you know, I, 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 be the little black hole of sobriety that you are. And, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, and go, and how are you? They won't know what to do, you know. What do you mean, how am I? I don't know. I'll have to call my sponsor and get back to you, click. Oh, it's a great thing. It's, I mean, the, the fact that anybody would call me and think that I had anything to say that might be, uh, whether they've got five minutes or five years or 50 years privilege, you know, because I don't know about you, but when I got here, my phone wasn't ringing too much. And the people who were calling me were usually mad. They weren't asking me what I thought. That first step, you know, for me, the first step, <laughs> we've talked about that tonight, the first step, the, the, the spiritual principle of surrender. Until I surrender it, I can't accept any help. Until I surrender it, I don't have a problem. This is wonderful, there's this wonderful statement in the Bible, now I'm saying Bible, not Holy Bible, because I know that'll upset some of you, so we'll just say Bible, you know, you know say Holy Bible, ooh, but Bible, <laughs> just Bible. And it says, if you were blind, you could see, but because you say you, you see, you remain blind. And I thought, you could just change that. If you said you were drunk, you could get sober, but because you say you're sober, you remain drunk. And that was my experience as the alcoholic. I don't have a problem. Until I admitted a problem, I couldn't get a solution for a problem. And this was my lifestyle. This is how much denial I was in. And, and newcomers, they do, uh, they do tell you lies in AA. I, I, I'm sorry, I disagree with that. I've heard people say they've never been lied to. I'm sorry, old timers will lie up one side of you and down the next if they think it will buy you one minute of sobriety. I tell people all the time, I lie to them, I say, how long are you sober? 50 days. They say, ooh, 51, central office sends you a present. We've sent them your address and they're going to deliver it to your house tomorrow. So stay sober for 51 days because you're going to get a gift. <laughs> About two weeks later, they come, where's my gift, man? I, I was waiting tomorrow. I mean, I waited like three or four days. Is it coming or what? <laughs> so they stayed sober another four days. But, but one of the things they tell you is this program's free. This program is not free. This program has cost me everything I had. And it's cost me my entire lifestyle. I don't have a lifestyle the way I used to. It says in the 12 and 12, a set of principles, spiritual in nature, if practiced as a way of life. Now, my lifestyle that I had to give up was really cool. I was sitting in my underwear, drunk. <laughs> it's a very cool thing to do, sitting in your underwear, drunk, by about 11 o'clock in the morning, crying because they'd missed the word bubble gum on the $10,000 pyramid for the big money. 
and laughing hysterically because Jillian was leaving Seneca one more time on Ryan's Hope. And then when I wanted a little aerobic exercise, I'd go to the front window and look out and go to the back window and then I'd sit down and have a drink. This was the lifestyle I had to give up and I wanted to think about it. Let me think, do I really want to go to A&A or do I want to give up this wonderful lifestyle? See, but it was the only thing I knew. I didn't know what you had and I had no idea at the time, but I had no idea how terrifying the thought of living the rest of my life without being able to drink to relieve the burden of life actually was. There's a prayer that used to be one of my favorite, it's still one of my favorite prayers, I just haven't read it in a while and I don't remember all of it. it was, I liked it because it was uh, attributed to an conf- anonymous Confederate soldier and so I liked it that it was anonymous. But in one of the lines and it says, I prayed for power that I might have the praise of men and I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. Feel the need of God. And it was only by admitting personal powerlessness that I was willing to accept the group power, the power that flowed through the group, the power of a higher power. See, and so that spiritual principle of surrender. And, and I knew that before I ever got to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I think some people come in here thinking, well, my life is unmanageable, but I don't know if I'm powerless. And, and people like me, I knew I was powerless. When you drink as much as I drink, you know, humility is not a problem for me. All I have to do is look at my life. <laughs> if I ever think, oh, I'm really doing well, I just have to look at what I did with my life prior to AA. And it's a very humbling experience. And so when I worked, walked in my first AA meeting, I was ready for the principle of the second step, which is hope. See, I had no hope. I knew I was an alcoholic, and I didn't know that you could get sober. I didn't know it was possible to recover from this disease. I'd never sat in a room with people who drank the way I drank. I went to that group therapy, and it was helpful, and they told me, don't drink. You know, just don't drink. And I'd come to AA, and they'd say, don't drink, and I didn't. I said, don't drink between meetings. Smoke a lot of cigarettes, have some coffee, but don't drink. And I did that. And all of a sudden, I knew it was possible to not drink. Remember, I come from an alcoholic family where everybody died of this disease. So I was sailing along, right? I'm doing really good. I, I'm bought into the first step. I'm powerless over alcohol. I got hope that if I hang around with you people, I can get sober. You were my higher power. I was cooking. And then, you know, you got that rotten, stinking old-timer in the group who always says, you know, boy... And remember, I got sober in Columbia, South Carolina in 1979. There's a little place in Columbia, South Carolina called Fort Jackson, little government uh, R&R center, and that means most of the old-timers in that area of the name are, are retired sergeant majors. These are people who don't care about your feelings. They get their little bony finger in your chest, <laughs> and they tell you what they think, whether you ask them or not. And one of them always come up, well, you know, boy, most of us have to do the rest of the steps to stay sober. You might, but you might not. I don't know about you, but I've, I've always been willing to do whatever it was to stay sober. I've always been able to surrender whatever it was to stay sober, and I've never want, I don't want to be creative in my sobriety. I mean, you try to stay sober without a four-step. If it works for you, maybe I'll try it. But I don't want any autumn tones. I just want to do it by the book. It allows me to be creative in the rest of my life. So they kept suggesting, if I didn't do the third step, I might not stay sober. Well, I had no problem with the first two, but uh, Russ said that the principle of the third step is trust and trust in a higher power, which now we turn into the word God. And I had stopped believing in God around 15. You know, I was going to church and then puberty hit. It was God or sex. You know who won. Even God can't compete with sex, you know what I mean? He's powerful, not that powerful of the pubescent efforts of a 14 or 15-year-old boy. And so when I got back to AA, I was stuck with this problem I thought I had neatly avoided. And see, I come from an alcoholic home, and in my home, my mom was the alcoholic, so my father was the co-alcoholic. 
and my father couldn't protect me from this little alcoholic. And you call God father, so you're asking me to trust something. You call father that in my life didn't protect me. And now in the big book it says, abandon yourself to God, and then it says, utterly abandon yourself to God. And I think when an author uses the word twice, it's probably important. And abandonment's a pretty scary thing, because I don't know what the image of abandonment is for you, but for me, I'm five years old, I'm on the side of the pool, I can't swim, dad's in the pool going, jump, and you're in midair. That's abandonment. Now if you come from an alcoholic home, the alcoholic, go ahead, jump, I can't sit. <laughs> and you're in midair, but I gotta get a drink. Plush. And if it's the co-alcoholic, go ahead, jump, I'll catch you, but I've got to take care of your mother, plush. Or they don't ever let you get wet because you might drown, then they feel bad. You know? And so, and I knew if I trusted this God, I was going to be a sewage manager in Green Bay, Wisconsin in the middle of winter. This was his will for me. <laughs> or I don't think you have him out here, but I always joke in L.A. about, that I was going to work at hot dog on a stick for the rest of my life. And a hot dog on a stick, they, they're all women who work there, so I was going to have to wear a girl's uniform which are the ugliest things in the world, and everybody's going to be out getting out of their meetings, and I'd be about 20 years sober going, corn dog, you want to try a corn dog? See, see, obviously, I had to develop this loving God concept. I had to learn how to trust. And, and what happened in my sobriety is all of a sudden you hit something you can't get through. I was joking this morning, but it's true. A flat tire in early sobriety is a reason for suicide or homicide or both. The fact that you have to brush your teeth every day. You know, when you're newly sober, just brushing your teeth every day? You mean I have to do this? I can't stand the pressure. <laughs> I didn't have to brush my teeth when I was drinking. I thought I was going to save so much money when I sobered up. Didn't you think that? You know, oh, there's all this money. And then you're, I know I've got to go to the dentist. I've got to pay the IRS. It all goes places. All these things you just forget when you're a little loaded, right? A little drinky-poo. Oh, IRS, Okay. But what happens in sobriety is, see, first of all, I took your experience, strength, and hope, because I had none. Somebody said, you can get through this, Steve. This is what I did. Blah, 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 blah. I changed the tire. You know, really complex directions like that. This is what I did, Steve. I brushed my teeth every day. And you go, oh, thanks, man, for sharing that. Okay, it's okay. I can do it. You know, it's that silly, but it works. <laughs> it absolutely works. Sometimes I think these drunks want complex answers. No, it's just the basic stuff. And, and I got through something, and then I got through something else, and then I got through something else, and then I got through something else. And all of a sudden, I've got my own experience, strength, and hope. And then the next problem comes up, and I think, you know, I made through the last one. I probably can make it through this one. And all of a sudden, this faith, this trust happens because God backs it up. Somebody said it today, or in one of the meetings, you have to believe in God because we're sober. I don't know about you, but that's the one truth I can never deny. Dale and I were talking about on the plane that sometimes, do you ever kind of think maybe this God thing, they made it all up and they just washed our brains? And I don't know about you, but my brain needed washing when it got here, so that would be okay. But, you know, you kind of think, like, is this, like, am I fantasizing? But it doesn't matter. To a certain extent, you know, if there is no God and I have the comfort of believing in one while I'm alive, I'd rather go through life thinking life had some meaning and find out later it didn't. But the fact of the matter is, I'm sober and I didn't used to be. I was blind and now I see. And I cannot argue with that fact, no matter what my head tells me, no matter when that little addiction sits up there and goes, you know, you've been sober 14 years. There's not that many people in meetings with 14 years. They're all drinking, because you can drink again. So I began to develop some trust. And then you walk into this thing, the fourth, the fifth, sixth, and seventh step, you know, self-searching. We're going to go look at that, and then we're going to deal with the principle of confession. Okay, uh-huh, then we're going to deal with willingness and humility. Wait a minute. I don't know about you, but the exact nature, singular, of my wrongs, plural, is that I am unlovable, and if I let you know who I am, you're going to go away. 
You guys remember Mary Hartman? Mary Hartman, remember that old series? Uh, if you don't, Mary Hartman it was this like nighttime sitcom that was uh, a, so, sort of like a soap opera, but Officer Foley was always trying to sleep with Mary Hartman, and she was married. And she never would sleep with him, but finally he had a heart attack. He was in the hospital, and I guess her codependency got the best of her, and she slept with him. And he had another heart attack. So she's feeling bad. Because <laughs> she almost killed this guy, right? And so the, the, the hospital shrink is sitting around there, and she, he says, you look really bad. What's wrong with you? And she goes, oh, no, I can't tell you. I, I really couldn't tell you. It's too disgusting. You'd hate me. And he goes, no, look, I'm a psychiatrist. I, I've heard everything. I can sit here and love you no matter what you tell me. She said, well, I slept with a man who had a heart attack, and he had another one. And the guy goes, you're disgusting. <laughs> you disgust me. I can't. And you know that's what your sponsor's going to do, don't you? You know, you're going to lay out all this stuff for him and go, oh, you disgust me. You, you're really the only person we can't admit to AA. You're so scummy that we can't let you in. You know, that's, that's that thing about admit nothing to nobody ever. That's a rule of being an alcoholic. It's such a different difference between spirituality and the way we're brought up, at least the way I was brought up. I was brought up that you hide everything that you think makes you unlovable. What happens? You come into AA, you dump all that stuff out, and somebody always oh, love you. Come here, baby. I hug you. <laughs> Didn't you hear what I just told you? Yeah, I love you. Come here, man. I have never, ever sat down with a man and heard his fifth step that I didn't love him more. And you know, and I've heard some stuff. I mean, we drink and we get into some stuff. Talked to a district attorney one time. Uh, they arrested this guy for stealing some plain rat vodka out of Ralph's. And the, the judge said, Mr. Jones, why did you steal that vodka? And he said, Your Honor, when a man's drinking, he'd just be doing things. <laughs> and that, that's like the classic answer. When a man's drinking, he'd just be doing things. Doing things here, doing things there. See, and this is another place. <laughs> this is another place where they lie to us newcomers. They tell me, I'm a, I'm a, I, you're a sick person trying to get well, not a bad person trying to get good. Oh, yeah? How come i got to do a moral inventory then? Huh? <laughs> wait, wait, wait just a second. Last time I saw, heart patients weren't doing moral inventories. Last time I looked, people with sugar diabetes weren't going, Hey, Joe, when you were out of town, I slept with your wife. I'm not doing it anymore, man, okay? I'm sorry. No, they don't have to do that. I have to do that because my book says I need something called moral psychology. Good and bad, right and wrong. God's standards, all that stuff that I don't want to hear about, that I want to deal with. And yet inside of me, I was drinking, and all the stuff I knew wasn't the thing for me to be doing. I could never drink away my conscience. But I had to keep drinking at it and drinking at it. You know, and it's great. Uh, uh, one of the, the four steps I did, there's a little place in, uh, in Malibu, and I, I, I'm really kind of worried because I didn't hear whether I left before it, it burned down. It's called Terra Retreat. And uh, I was about four years sober, and I was going to do a four-step, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh on a technicality. Now, it's my opinion you do not have to have a good motive to do the steps. God will use it no matter what you do. And I've almost always done my steps for a bad motive, to impress somebody, to get somebody, get my wife back, get her to go away, anything, right? And so I was doing this. I wanted God's will in my life, so I thought I'd schmooze him. You know, I thought I could manipulate God. God can make a butterfly, but he won't see that I'm trying to manipulate him. Because I want to be God's favorite, you know? I want to be right under his arm, you know, his big old hairy armpit. You know, King David, Steve Bordner. That's, they're my guys right here. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I hate about grace, because it means God loves you as much as he loves me, you know what I mean? And I don't mind that he loves you. I just want him to love me a little bit more. See, I want to be special, right? <laughs> and you can't get special with God. So if I can't get special, then I think he's, I'm his only stepchild. Oh, yeah, he loves you, but he tolerates me, right? It's one of my unfavorite sayings in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, if you're having a problem with God, think how much problem God's having with you. 
I don't like that statement. God's not having any problem with me. God's taking care of Bangladesh. Steve Bordner is no problem. Steve Bordner has a lot of problems with God. I don't like the way he runs the universe. I want to vote on everything. You know? And the kingdom of God is not a democracy. I got my hand on the stove. I'm going, God, it hurts. Make the pain stop. He's going, take your hand off the stove, Steve. I'm going, is there another way? Because I want to keep my hand on the stove and it not hurt. I want the cake and no calories. I want to drink and no consequences. See? And it's just not the way the real world works. So I've gone up to Sarah retreat. I was going to do all these steps. I was going to get all cleaned out spiritually. And then God was going to have to tell me in real words what his will for me was. I wanted him to say, I want you to go down to the corner, take a left turn. That's the kind of stuff I get. So I wrote all night my four step. And I, you know, and that's a, I love that step. I don't know why there's such a, a controversy. It's a great step because the first three columns are wonderful. Who? Who hurt me? I get the name who. I love the name who. You know? And what they did, I love to tell people what they did to me. They did this and they did that. And, and then, you know, what did it affect? My self-esteem, my personal relationships, my sex relationships. It was a great step to the fourth column. Where am I at fault? Now, this sucks. <laughs> I mean, I think Bill Wilson had a wonderful step going until he added the fourth column. I don't think anybody would have got sober with that, but we could have had a lot of fun drinking. Yeah, who? I'll tell you, who? Have to get another drink, yeah? So I write, and I write, and I fast, and I'm up there, and, and, and they're, all, they're all Franciscan monks up there, and there's a guy named Father Tang, he's got a bald head, and, and I go out, and it's Malibu, and there's a specific ocean there, and there's woods, and I, I swear Father Tang had a little bird on his finger, you know, talking to it, and, and I go, hi, Father Tang, I'm Steve Ordner, I'm an alcoholic, I got this fifth step here, and fourth step, and I need to fifth step it with you, so I, I want you to, and he goes, Sister Carmel handles the private retreat. <laughs> I said, excuse me, he said, Sister Carmel handles the private retreats. I said, Father, you don't understand, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, there's a sexual inventory, and I don't think Sister Carmel wants to hear this alcoholic sexual inventory. He goes, Sister Carmel handles the private retreats. All right, I'm a nice little Presbyterian boy. I don't know much about nuns. It's just what my recovering Catholic friends tell me, which is that they're all six foot four, have one eye in the center of their head, hair all over their body, and that they torture small children. This is all I know about nuns. So I figure if it's God's will, I'll do it. So I go down there. Sister Carmel is about 90 pounds, soaking wet. She's not even in a habit. She asks me to sit down, and I start giving her this fist step. Well, I'm a little dubious here. You know, I know her head's going to start turning around, and they're going to have the exorcist in here, right? So I give her the resentments, and she's going, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, and I give her the fearless, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. so I try some of the sexual stuff on her, you know, the pubescent stuff, and she goes, mm-hmm, 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 she handles that, so I give her the 60s peach smarch sort of thing, uh-huh, 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 well, she's doing all right, in fact, she's getting a little bored, which is hurting my feelings, because I feel like if my sexual inventory can't gross out a nun, maybe I stop drinking too soon. So I give her the quaalude part of the story, you know, the trapeze and the camels. She doesn't blink an eye. She asked me, you know, she said, she gave me a quote out of her big, big book, you know. And it was, I have, I have called you by name and you are mine, declares the Lord. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful God this little nun had. God doesn't just say, I'll take that group of drunks and my nots. But that God calls each of them. That, that God is, is more obsessed with heaven. And it's all about how God... And what that, what that inventory did for me is I'd sat with an alcoholic man and told him everything about myself and had been loved. And now I sat with a non-alcoholic and I found him to be loved. And it broke me out of any kind of acceptance. Alcoholism is a lonely disease that shut me off from the world. And what the steps have done in my life has opened up the doors, first through you. See, I'm an army brat and an alcoholic. 
I've been in the club that I go to in Los Angeles for over 12 years. I've known people there for 12 years. I've had fights and had to make up. I've, I've gotten along and not gotten along. I've been resentful and not resentful. I loved them and hated them. I've had to rub up and down against them. That's one of the greatest gifts, because see, I wanted to come here, get sober and leave. And I would never have learned how to play with others. And what Alcoholics Anonymous is teaching is how to play with others. Somebody gave me something the other day that says, pain is the universe's way of getting our attention until we... And I was 29, and I still had how to be part of a group. And uh, the, the process of the steps have, uh, have changed that. The process of making amends, you know, the process of forgiveness. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I looked at all those people on that list of the eight steps, and I looked at everything I had done to them, it wasn't very hard for me to forgive them for what they did to me. When I looked at all the things I'd done, and what a, what a great, great privilege that is. I know, remember one thing, I woke up and this was just, you know, the material amends are easy for me. Those are easy. You get money, you pay them back. You know, you got something, you give them back. It's the emotional amends that are tough. The emotional amends to my ex-wife, who wasn't in my life anymore. So I had to make that a living amends. I don't do to women what I did to her. See, and that's an amend I'll have to do for the rest of my life. And all I can do to her is what I, I read finally that Chuck C. did, and I didn't know it. I just did the same thing, which is if I, uh, you know, if I could ever be in your life again, if you never ever need anything, I hope you call me. And she hasn't done that, you know. She hasn't wanted to do that. But I remember I had this, uh, it was a lumberjack jacket, and it was in my closet. I'd stolen it. Uh, I didn't steal much, see, because I'm small and white. I go to jail, I'm an hors d'oeuvre, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not crazy. I was alcoholic, but I wasn't crazy. I wasn't going to jail. This little suburban college-educated white boy was not going to jail. But one night, I was a little stoned, and I was in one of those expensive stores, Target, Kmart, one of those guys' places. And uh, I put this thing on and walked out with it. And you wake up, and your men's are hanging in your closet. It's a real pain in the neck. And so, I, and I got with my sponsor. See, I had to get with my sponsor about these amends because the way I was going to make some amends, I was going to do more damage with the amends than I was going to, and I was going to have to make another amend. So I had to run these amends through my sponsor. And he told me I had to go back there and make the amend. So I walk into that Kmart, you know, I go up to the, I go, and this is back in South Carolina now, right? And I go up to the, the uh, service desk and I, and I ask the woman if I can see the manager. And I know she's looking right through me because what I hear is, manager to desk, manager to desk, thief here, he's making a nice step, let's get him out of the house. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at my feet, spiritual giant that I am, I'm looking at my feet. And, and all of a sudden these little black shoes show up. And then this little polyester pants. Then there was a little white polyester shirt with the pins in the pocket, and then this little red neck, and then these glasses, and I'm looking right, you've got to be Southern to understand this, right into the face of Bubba. <laughs> in the South, we got Bubba, you know, and there's Bubba-ism. And I'm this old hippie. I wanted, you know, I thought, Jesus, God, could you just give me something out of the record department? You know, some guy, long-haired guy with an earring to make this amend to, you know, somebody who knows who T-Rex is. I'm being good here. And I had this speech, hi, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, I'm here to make a spiritual amendment. And it all just, I'm Steve, I stole from you, I'm sorry, don't put me in jail, I don't mean to do that. You know? <laughs> and I made this crying amendment, he looked me in the eye, and he said, you're going to really mess up my inventory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's part of what the steps are so humbling. You know, you're carrying the cross of Calvary, and everybody's going, we don't care, put it down. And I had a very good sponsor, I said, okay, well, uh, could I give the money to charity? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. I'll give the money to charity. And I said, any charity? And he named one. And I said, great. And shook his hand and walked away. And as I got about five steps, he says, hey, you. Now, I knew here comes the security guard. I'm going. And I turned around. He looked me in the eye and said, I don't know what happened to you, but I'm glad it happened. 
Now see, there's that contempt prior to investigation, isn't it? Here's this man I judged just on the way he looked. And when I turned and looked at him, there was nothing between us. We were from it. And I was back in the world because I was making up for something I did that was wrong. It was wrong to do what I did. And in working the steps, one and one equals three, and God transforms even the rotten stuff I do into something good. And I can't do that. I don't think you can do that. That's God. My father, who was the greatest man I ever knew, even though he was a co-alcoholic without a program and didn't protect me from this little drunk, I tell you, coming from where he came, he was the greatest man I ever knew. He was a command sergeant major. Tall man, went through three wars. It was a loving, loving, kind crown. And the last couple of years of his life, he went out through a series of strokes. And when I was a year sober, I went back home, and he was paralyzed. And you know, sometimes God blesses an adult child to be able to care for the parent the way the parent cared for the child. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't bathe my old man. I couldn't change my old man. I couldn't feed him. It was just too hard to look his face in that bed and take care of him. And every time my stepmother offered me the privilege of care, and he died. I moved out here, and I used to go to County General in Los Angeles, the end of the line of alcoholics, going there, it was out to here. It was the best meeting in Los Angeles, 6,000 Ward of County General. And, and I'm a very, I got a, I got a very light stomach, you know, I come to your house, I have to use the bathroom, you're going to hear the water running. I'm very private about these things, you know, and I'm in, this, I'm in this alcoholic ward, and there's this old man trying to get up off the bed, and he's about 90 pounds, soaking wet, dying of alcoholism, trying to get on that bedpan, and all of a sudden I'm in that room, and I'm helping him, and I'm taking care of him, and then he's back in bed, and then I've got a nurse for him, and then I'm in the hallway, and I thought, you know, because I'd become entirely willing, and I guess God... I get men coming to me all the time, my family. I don't know how I can ever make up for what I've done in my life. I don't know how I ever can make up for all the destruction. And sometimes you don't ever get your child back, you know? Uh, I, 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 Dale is one of my favorite people, and one of, the, one of the, the wonderful things that Dale has done for me, and I don't even know if he knows this, is, is to watch his relationship with his daughter. See, my mother was alcoholic. My mother died of this disease. In 1979, she got so sick. In 1975, she got so sick and tired of being sick and tired. She took her country and western music. She took a hand of She took a, a bottle of booze. She took her candles because she didn't want to die in the dark. She went down in the basement and she turned and the miracle of alcoholics and all that happens. See, I come from a life, if it wasn't about me, I wasn't interested. Yeah, his daughter liked him, but my mother didn't live. And to watch his relationship with his daughter, to watch sons give mothers cakes, to watch marriages heal, to watch sons and daughters and families come together. We were talking last night, and everything we talked about practically in the meeting was about how the family healed and how we could be there now. What an amazing experience for people. You know. And then there's that 10th step, and I'll, I'll finish with that, the 10th step, you know, because, see, i got to do it promptly. I don't know about you. Give me 24 hours, I don't have to apologize. Give me 48 hours, it's your fault. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I kind of try to like to promptly. And, and, and it's very hard for a guy who was never wrong to come into a program that has wrong written right on the wall. You know, there's a whole step about being wrong. And I, you got to have a lot of self-esteem to be wrong. And I never had enough self-esteem to be wrong before I got sober. And I remember I'd gone back to church because that dirty, rotten, stinking book had suggested it, and I usually do what the dirty, rotten, stinking book had suggested. And I'd gone back to graduate school. It was Christmas, and I was really stressed out, but I was going to go to an early church service because it was football season, and even God doesn't go to church during football season. It was the playoffs. And, and so I thought, well, I'll go to one of those early classes because that's, like, that's a little bit like a meeting, and I'll go to an early service. I'll get back for halftime. So I was, I was, but you know, in the Sunday school class, see, an Alcoholics Anonymous, there's three legal drugs, caffeine, white sugar, and tobacco. 
Now, God's taken the tobacco away from me, but I'm going to abuse the white sugar and the caffeine as long as I can. So if I'm going to drink coffee, I want brewed coffee. I want coffee that you can put a spoon in. I want coffee you get a little speedy behind, you know what I mean? And, and they have that, that instant coffee in those Sunday school classes, so I stopped at the 7-Eleven to get some brewed. I had my 60 cents in my pocket, because, I mean, who wants to stand in line while they get their lottery tickets and their pizza? I mean, 7-Eleven was supposed to be quick. And you can be in there for three or four days. So I got my coffee, I'm in my car, and the guy's coming out of the door. And I realized I forgot to pay. Reached in there, there was my 60 cents. Rolled down the window, <laughs> I gave him my 60 cents, and I'm sorry, I forgot to pay. He looks at me and then goes, Now already I'm angry, because this guy's been in the country 10 minutes, he's got a 7-Eleven, I'm driving a Tercel. You know what I mean? But all of a sudden I realized, the veil came down, and I realized I was there before I was there, and I realized this guy thought I stole this cup of coffee. And the most important thing in my life became to be right. He didn't know I was an alcoholic going to church on a Sunday morning. What a lame thing to do. I was being good. How could he accuse me of stealing? I threw my car into gear, got out of my car, only being helpful and kind in all my affairs. Eight years of sobriety. I said, hey, you, come here very spiritual. I said something, he said something, I said something. I said, I played the alcoholic trump card. I want to talk to the manager. <laughs> you manager talkers here, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> he says, I'm the manager. Well, now I'm totally screwed. You know? I wanted to just, I wanted his face to burst into flame. I was praying for that, actually, very spiritually. And, and so I go back to my car, but in my car is my Bible. Now I have a prop. There is nothing more dangerous than an alcoholic with a prop. I get my Bible. I go back in that 7-Eleven. <laughs> He's at the other end of the counter. I go, hey, you. He turns around and I go, I told you I didn't steal that cup of coffee. <laughs> now, if it had been the Bhagavad the, the Vita, the Koran, he might have been impressed. He says, oh, yes, crazy man has nice leather books. That's nice. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> so I exit the 7-Eleven. Spiritual giant. God has now stopped. Look at Calcutta. And it's a bravo, Steve, you spiritual midget you. <laughs> I go to church, and I know my dirty, rotten, stinking, stinking sponsor is called the dirty, rotten, stinking pastor because he's given something like a dirty, rotten, stinking AA pitch, and I know i got to work the dirty, rotten, stinking 10th step or die with a big, fat liver out to here. So I get back in my car. <laughs> I go back to the 7-Eleven. <laughs> you know, I walk out, I'm 6 foot 8, my back end, I'm 6 foot 4, you know, 4 foot 6. So I go back in there, his eyes get real big around, you know, he goes, oh, oh bad karma, crazy man's back. <laughs> Must have done something really bad in previous life. <laughs> I go up to him and I say what I've said 10 million times in sobriety. I'm sorry for saying what I said anytime you want to. Now, end of story. I don't have to drink anymore. It's done, except for that guy's name. It's Sam. I used to go in that 7-Eleven once or twice a week. Sam and I would have a cup of coffee. We'd sit there, scratch, and tell each other a few lies, you know? And Sam and I became friends because I was a dry drunk with a bad attitude, and I did a step simply because I didn't want to die, and one and one equals three. See, and I don't know what's going to happen with Sam. I don't know what's going to happen with that guy at Kmart. I don't know what's going to happen to the rest of the people that I made amends to, but somewhere along the line, they may have a friend sitting there drinking themselves to death and say, you know, this crazy man came in my 7-Eleven one day, then he came back, made an amend, and then we talked, and he was going to AA, and he got sober, and why don't you go there too? Because when I was drinking, I threw the pebble of my life in the water, and the ripples affected Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob are in this room tonight. Right? Right? Everything you cherish, they're out there taking five bucks for, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, five, here, three, take, take both of them. I never know why my mom had this stuff in the first place. The only thing that's left is the relationship. You know, I'll tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous is like. The drunk is really sick and hurting. The drunk, because he's hurting, says, well, uh, <clears throat> how much does it cost? 
The drunk says, well, I got about $50 in my pocket. And God says, okay, I'll, I'll take your 50 bucks. And the drunk says, well, if I give you the $50, then I won't have enough gas for my car. He says, oh, you have a car. <laughs> oh, well, uh, sobriety is going to cost you your car. He says, well, if I give you my car, I can't get to my job. Oh, you're employed, employed still, I see. Well, sobriety is going to cost you your, your job. Well, if I give you my job, then I can't pay for my house. Oh, you have a home, I see. You're still living someplace. Well, sobriety is going to cost you your home. Well, if I give you my home, my wife and my kids won't have any place to live. Oh, you have a family. Uh-huh, well, sobriety is going to cost you your family. Well, if I give you all that, what good's my life? And God looks at him. And the alcoholic, because he's sick and hung out and got no place left to go, and God gives the drunk sobriety. And then he looks him deep in the eye and he says, all right, I'm going to give you your money back. I'm going to give you your car back, but it's not your car anymore. It's my car, but you get it. I'm going to give you your home back, but it's not your home anymore. It's my home, but you get to live in it for me. I'm going to give you your family back, but they're not your family anymore. You have absolutely used up every right you have to a family, but I'm going to give them back to you. They're my family, and you get to take care of them for a day. It's a direct result of sharing.